This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Well, thank you. As our audience can probably tell, this is a rare live Human Action Podcast. It's the final day of Mises University this week. We've had a long week, a hot week. A lot of people are still taking tests today. But uh, listeners of the show know that this is a books podcast. We, we cover a different book every week. Sometimes we take several weeks to cover a longer book. Usually it's economics, oftentimes written by someone who's no longer with us. But occasionally we take the opportunity to do a current book. And when we do so, we try to have the author himself or herself join us. And we're very uh, lucky this week to have just that. Uh, this is Dr. Stephen Phelan. Uh, he teaches at uh, Kennesaw States, which is not too, too far away outside Atlanta, so he was able to drive over and join us. He's not only a professor of entrepreneurship, but he also runs the management school there. Uh, he was originally from Australia, where he had a, a, a professional career in business and telecom, uh, obtained an MBA and a PhD, and then came to the United States, where he has taught business and entrepreneurship at a variety of schools. Uh, he is the author of Startup Stories, which some of you in front uh, get, are going to get a copy of, and I bet if you're really nice to him, he might even sign it. Uh, so give him a big round of applause for joining us. So uh, you gave me this great definition of an entrepreneur, but you know, listening to Hunter, whom I know you know, I just wanted to ask before, you know, we've got young students here, a lot of them are probably just still in school. So in their head, they're trying to maybe finish school or they're thinking about finding that first job. Uh, and they're thinking, hey, you know, I don't really have any experience. I don't really have any money. I don't really have any capital or connected parents or something. You know, entrepreneurship sounds like something for people who are further along than me. So, so how can they, how and why should they be thinking entrepreneurial despite this at the, at the early stage of their life? Well, that's a very good question, uh, Jeff. And it's primarily, the reason I wrote the book was basically to point out that everyone is entrepreneurial at all stages of their career. At any point in time, you can act entrepreneurially. And so this notion that you have to get to a certain stage, a certain level of wealth, that you have to have a certain level of network or contacts, I'm trying to make the argument in the book here that that's not the case and that you can just start doing things from the various uh, the earliest age to push things forward. So we're going to get into the definition of entrepreneurship in a second, and I'm going to throw it back to you. I know you've been very, very patient sitting out there listening to people talk to you. You had the British accent, you've got the Australian accent now, but I want to hear from you, get your ideas, an exam of sorts, if you like, make it a little bit interactive here about uh, what, what you all think entrepreneurship is and how it gels with my definition, and hopefully we can all learn something here today. So what is that definition? So I, I say an entrepreneur is someone who deploys resources in anticipation of future gains. Someone who deploys resources in anticipation of future gains. So if we break down what those words mean, we start to get a sense of why I think everyone could be an entrepreneur. So the first question for the audience, what's a resource? Okay, so tangible objects, so chairs, tables, carpets, buildings. Big, small, anything like that. Okay, any other? Okay, well, human capital. So what's human capital then? Oh, uh, human capital is human skills, human knowledge, anything you're 
Okay, so we've got physical resources, we've got human resources. Are there any other resources? Time, okay, so time is probably the most valuable resource that people have. One more hand. Focus, so attention, where you choose to focus that attention could be a resource. And I would also add in there social networks and social resources, the know who as well as the know how or know what. So college is very focused on knowing what. Uh, we, you know, learning a trade is about knowing how. There's also knowing who as well, which is a social resource. So when we talk about deploying resources, we're talking about all of those things. So right now, at, at the youngest age, you have your whole life ahead of you, and you need to decide where am I going to deploy my valuable resources, my time, my attention, my training, my network, how am I going to build those resources? How am I going to deploy what I already have? So you can be doing that today. You can be doing that yesterday. And for the rest of your life, you can be working on assembling and deploying those resources. So when people say, I've got no money, it's not relevant. You can be entrepreneurial with your time. You can be entrepreneurial with your financial capital, your physical capital, your social networks, all of that can be deliberate. So that's deploying, that's the resource side of it. So uh, first of all, I really want to recommend the book because it, it's a, an entertaining and easy read. It's a great, a great book. It's not like entrepreneur books that you see at the, in sort of the self-helpy section or the business section of the bookstore. It's not like that. But Devil's Advocate, Okay. When, when people think of entrepreneurs, there tends to be this mental picture of, you know, something, maybe it's techie and they're creating, it's some young techie people and they're creating an app or something and they're out in Silicon Valley and these venture capital guys come to them and, and pour tons of money into them for a few years, which is hemorrhaged. But then there's this happy ending because the app is great and they sell it and the VC guys get paid and then they become uh, Peter Thiel or Elon Musk. And, and that's not it at all, according to your book. Well, that's part of it. I mean, you can go in that direction if you want to. And so the way the book characterizes the entrepreneurship is as a series of levels. So the very first level is managing your own human capital, which we've just discussed, your time, how you acquire knowledge, how you utilize that knowledge, how you build your network. That's the, the very entry level of entrepreneurship. So everyone can do that. Everyone's an entrepreneur in that sense. And then as you start to aspire to higher levels of entrepreneurship, you need to start to bring more things into the the conversation, so to speak. So part of the problem is that, you know, it's very rare to be a billionaire. How many billionaires are there in the world? Anyone thought about that? How many in the United States? How many billionaires? Is it like 600? It's in the book. <laughs> so you look very good. 600, yep. Is it cheating to reference the fact that you're There you go. So... They're right on the ball here, being very entrepreneurial to actually look at the book. That's excellent. So, but you ask someone on the street, the number's typically much higher. So you're talking about something that's very rare here. So it doesn't mean they don't exist. It doesn't mean somebody can't be a billionaire starting a company. It's just very rare. Okay, Getting to the highest level of entrepreneurship is like starting out in sports, high school sports, and saying, I want to play for the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, something like that. It happens. People do it all the time, right? But if you go further into the book, you realize how many people get recruited by the NBA, drafted by the NBA every year? 
No idea, right? 50, 30 women, 50 men. Okay, how many high school basketball players are there? 150,000. Okay, so you're about the same odds of becoming a billionaire <laughs> or a millionaire or however you want to define success. But another part of that definition there is deploying resources in anticipation of future gain. Does gain always mean money? No, right? What other things can you get being an entrepreneur other than money? A family? So you start a business in order to find a family? Good. <laughs> That's possible. Such as? Okay. So the comment there was it could be money, it could be leisure time, it could be time with family and so forth. That's what we mean by future gain. I'm not happy with my current state. And that's the tie into the work of Mises, right? That means ends thing that we're talking about. I have this future desired state that I want to achieve, but it doesn't mean that every future state has to have a billionaire in it, right? In fact, the number one reason people start businesses is, you think it's to make money? Freedom, right? Autonomy, not having a boss. Number one reason. Okay, so future gain is not having to have a boss, right? So I'm deploying the resources that I have at hand in anticipation of some sort of future gain. So that's where the gain part fits into the definition. So let's assume that realistically, a lot of our students will start their work lives as W-2 employees somewhere. How can they be entrepreneurs as a W-2 employee? Well, I'm a W-2 employee right now, and I like to think that I act entrepreneurially in every organization I participate in. So does the definition say you have to own the resources? An entrepreneur deploys resources in anticipation of future gain. Does it have to be your resources? No, right? It could be anyone's resources. So you as an entrepreneur can beg, borrow, and steal other people's resources. You can use your own resources. But if you're working in an organization for an employer, you can use their resources in order to build something that's going to lead to future gain. So that's just helping the employer, right? And making them a million dollars. Is it helping me? Yeah, how? I'm getting experience. Think it's helpful for my future employment if my employer is still around? <laughs> right? So when I look back on my life, which is getting, seems to be getting longer and longer, every, there's been a whole bunch of experiences that I've had that I've been able to bring to the table in order to look at new ways of doing things, to, to add value to whatever I'm working on, whether it's my own venture, somebody else's venture, an existing organization, a social organization. So gain is not just money, it's not just about me. I could be doing social good out there and now you're talking social entrepreneurship. So the gain can be va you know, vaster than just money. Now, one thing has certainly changed for this generation. You know, my grandfather worked at the same company from the time he was about 17 till his 60s. They're likely to have a bunch of jobs, a bunch of gigs maybe even, not W-2 jobs. Right, so a very, very large number of people now working in the gig economy. Who's, who thinks that they've worked in the gig economy? Show of hands. 
Look at that. Yeah, so you're running roughly around in this audience the US average right now. So, you know, the average is that 40% of people will be self-employed at some stage in their career. 40% self-employed. Bringing some sort of income. Right today, 27% of the US workforce earns at least some income from self-employment. Okay, so we're not talking about something that's a tiny fraction of the economy anymore. This is something that half of you in the room are going to experience and probably a quarter of you are currently experiencing. Right? So learning how to, to navigate that world is going to be very important. Okay, so tying the definition back again, we're talking about anticipation of future gain. So this is once again coming back to those Austrian themes about uncertainty. So is the gain guaranteed? If I do this, this, and this with my resources, I'm going to get X outcome? No, right? The future is uncertain. So the nature of entrepreneurship, some have even defined it as the management of uncertainty, that that's the unique aspect of entrepreneurship in, in the whole world of economic and business theory. So when we're acting entrepreneurially, we're going out into this uncertain world. We don't know that that's going to be the, the, the payoff. So another tie back to Mises then is, is everyone's anticipated gain equally valid? You know, is everyone equally good at seeing the future? No. So that's a skill that you can hone over time. The more experiences you have, the different sorts of experiences that you have, the training, the knowledge, the networks, the contacts that you bring, all of that is going to shape your anticipation of the future and make you better at it. The more you learn to do this, the more you try it out, the more confident that you are at navigating that future in ways that others may not be. In the same way that somebody that practices basketball drills is going to get better at basketball. You know, if I'm out there shooting the three-pointers, I'm going to get better at it. It's, entrepreneurship is the same sort of thing. Right. And finally, we, we had in that definition deploy, right? So what does it mean to deploy a resource? Is it a one-off thing? I deploy my time, okay? It means I'm showing up at, over time, right? Every day, maybe. So there's an element of perseverance in entrepreneurship of doing things and working at things over time. You know, I tell my entrepreneurship students and they don't like it. I'm like, they show up to my class and they're like, effectively saying, I want to play for the NFL. Put me on, coach. So how many people just show up at a stadium and get put on the field for the NFL? I'm thinking zero, right? Why is that? Obvious question, right? Because they've been training most of their life to get to that level. So I ask entrepreneurship students, so how much training have you done? Have you been doing this stuff? You've been practicing it? And the answer is typically no. Okay, so something else to think about. Deploying resources is not a one-time thing. And particularly when you've got other people working on your team, keeping them engaged in the activity is also incredibly challenging. So trying to execute on your vision of the future and bring everyone else along with that is actually a major, major feat of difficulty. So last year with COVID, we saw a lot of people uh, reconfiguring how they work, Zoom, where they work, maybe from a beach. You have this 
concept of a lifestyle entrepreneur in your book. Maybe some people would be a-okay making a r- small amount of money if they could do it from a beach. Yeah, I've, I've met several entrepreneurs throughout my career that have, have decided they didn't want to go the Silicon Valley route. And they basically said, hey, I'm happy making half a million dollars a year, selling a software as a service, and living wherever I feel like around the world while that subscription comes in every month. Sounds good, doesn't it? Good life? Who'd like that life? Not too bad. What's the problem? Where do I sign up to do that? Is there an application form I fill out? So the reality is that those people I'm thinking about put a a lot of work into getting to the point where they could live wherever they wanted and do whatever they wanted. That's the failed podcaster Tom Woods model. Right. (laughs) Yep. So little details, right, little details. So, yeah, so definitely there are lifestyle entrepreneurs out there who say, this is all I need, this is what I'm looking for, I value that freedom, I value that autonomy, I value living on the beach, uh, and I just need enough to to make that lifestyle work. And I don't want to grow my business to the point where someone's going to buy it or I'm going to go public with Silicon Valley or things like that. So once again, if that's the level you want to be at and that's your conscious choice, Go for it. I mean, who am I to say that's the wrong way to be an entrepreneur? And who is anyone to say that's the wrong way? Of course, the venture capitalists don't want you to say that. They want to get the money from the IPO, right? So not everyone's going to agree with you, but chart your own course. Yeah, we have a pretty self-selecting audience here, people who are uh, pro-free market, pro-dynamic economy. But as I'm reading your book and you bring up this psychological uh, uh, construct of the external locus of control, people who are fixated on things beyond their control. And, and as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, okay, Dr. Field, and this is starting to get a little free markety, almost ideological, this idea that we need to be self-starters and go-getters. Um, that almost starts to sound like an ideology. Well, I wouldn't go so far as an ideology. For me, it's an empirical observation. So I've worked with, met with hundreds of entrepreneurs over my life. And one of the central things that I find they all have in common is this sense of personal responsibility. And probably the second thing they have in common is this notion of proactiveness, to go out and make it happen. So they don't talk about it, they do it. Right, and that's the that's the difference. And every chapter of the book has an opening case and a closing case of entrepreneurs that I've met throughout my life. All except the last chapter, I didn't meet those people, but everyone else in the book are people that I've met at different levels of entrepreneurship. So there were people there who sold the business for a hundred million dollars. There are people making a hundred million in revenue. There's people just providing for their family and did so for 50 years and, and just put, had enough to put food on the table, you know? And all of them are entrepreneurs and I applaud them all and I admire them all, okay? But the factor that they had in common was that they did it. They didn't just talk about it. And so that whole Nike slogan of just do it, <laughs> that's, that's what entrepreneurship's about. And they don't care what it is, do it. Don't talk about it. But there's two factors you just mentioned that you've found in common amongst entrepreneurs. Those two factors are a lot more easily, easily obtained in a relatively free society. It's harder if you're in the former Soviet Union to be an entrepreneur. Well, the way I think about that is back to uh, Bommel's idea of productive and unproductive entrepreneurship. So the institutions of the society that you're in shape the way that people are going to be entrepreneurial. So the black market flourished in the Soviet Union, right? There were lots of entrepreneurs there. 
um, making things work. Uh, similarly, there are lots of entrepreneurs in the political system that are uh, making things work for themselves that way. But the question is, is that helping society? And so I'm a big fan of the free market because I think it's an error correcting mechanism that you, know, you get feedback is this the right thing? Is it working? Is it giving customers value? Is it uh, something that I personally gain from, that others gain from? I can't make personal gain without making somebody else, creating value for somebody else, right? Why is there an exchange happening if I'm not adding value in some way? Uh, but the question of how value gets created and how it gets captured is also an institutional story. And then, and then you start to get into the whole economic argument there. So... So we can go there. No one wants to, I'm sure, but see me, see me afterwards and we can have that discussion. Yeah, and, and to be sure, there are very successful entrepreneurs who don't necessarily share our political or economic worldview, and I, I don't want to imply that, but y you know, it, it sure seems like um, you, know, you, you talk about gazelles and mavericks and heroes. Um, you, you tell us a little bit about who, who these people are and, and how you came up with these, uh, this nomenclature. So uh, society often, particularly U.S. society, sees entrepreneurs as heroes, uh, you know, certainly lionized in the press and so forth, and that's a great thing. I think innovation is the, the lifeblood of the country here, and I think we should all be uh, striving to see that happen. There's also this notion of entrepreneurs as mavericks, right, and uh, that they're somehow different from the rest of us. And so... Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, or Gary V, if anyone's familiar with him, has an interesting take on that. He said, is it, I, I show of hands who knows who Gary V is. And uh, okay. Damon John, have seen Shark Tank, Damon on Shark Tank. So uh, he came out and did an event for me one, one time. And, um, you know, what's interesting there is they both talk about doing the grind. You know, so what's the grind? Does anyone know what that means? Living paycheck to paycheck, yep. It's one part of it. Working for a long period of time before things pay off. So going back to that sports example, you know, how many times, did, you know, someone get out there and shoot three-pointers when they're trying to play for the NBA, you know, do the drills and so forth. They're out there every day, right? They're getting up. I, I think about the Olympic swim team, you know, the sort of grueling schedule they have to train to get to the Olympics. They're in the pool at 5 a.m., 4 a.m. They're in the weight room. They go back twice in the pool, every day to the pool. They're doing cardio. They're doing strength work and so forth. That's the grind. Who wants to do that? Right? They're like, I do because I want that gold medal. Right? But here's an interesting thing. So the first question to ask yourself is, am I doing the grind? You know, how much do I really want it? And because we're talking levels here, I don't necessarily think you need to all go out and be Olympians and, and work that hard at businesses and I'm going to do everything I can to get to the top. But if you want that, then you have to do the grind. <laughs> you can't just sit back and wait for it to land in your lap and say, you know, because everyone else out there is doing that work. You know, I'll just sit back and wait for my gold medal, right? It's like... Good luck with that. But by the same token, ability might come into things. So maybe there is something different about somebody. You know, we, we hear about uh, athletes that have abnormally large 
hearts, for example, they do more cardio. We hear about, obviously, people who have to be a certain height. You know, 99% of the MBA is above a certain height and so forth. So maybe the grind doesn't always matter that there's something different there that you need to be at the top. But you're never going to know unless you do the work. And that's basically Gary Vee and Damon John's point. You don't know if you have what it takes, but you certainly don't have it if you don't do the work. How might young people develop a sense for where they should focus their efforts? How can they better understand their own aptitudes? Well, what's my mantra? Just do it. <laughs> That's the best way. I was 24 years old when I tried to buy a million dollar business and put a deal together. Just, just had no idea what I was doing, but I tried it, right? But that knowledge and that experience and that learning stay, has stayed with me forever, for 30 years. Right? And everything is building on everything else. Have I had failed businesses? Absolutely. Have I had successful businesses? I've sold businesses. I've, you know, I'm very happy where I'm at with my career right now. It was an intentional choice to, to move to Atlanta last month. And so, you know, so things are working out and I'm, I'm optimistic that it's going in the right direction. But at the end of the day, you're never going to know just by sitting and talking about it or thinking about it or wondering about it. And the good news is every single one of those experiences layers and becomes part of who you are and, and helps you be better for the next time around. So is the grind inescapable? It's a necessary ingredient? I mean, there's luck, right? <laughs> Somebody can be born lucky. Somebody gets the winning lottery ticket, right? Friend of mine just won $5 million in the lottery. <laughs> you know, great. <laughs> But that's not everyone, is it? So, you know, so there's going to be luck, there's going to be bad luck, good luck. I mean, that's, that's the nature of the world. But at the end of the day, that sense of personal responsibility, what can you do about a world where luck's a factor? All you can do is take personal responsibility and say, I'm going to make my way in the world, right? And improve my lot, whatever my hand is that I'm dealt. You know, I think that's an underappreciated aspect of American society is we admire the grind. We, we don't care about nouveau riche. And we admire the self-made person more than the trust fund kid in this country. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, do, do, you, do you agree with that as someone coming from, from Australia? Well, you know, the story I tell about Australia is that as a society, it, it believes in luck a lot more than the U.S. And so uh, if you tell somebody, I'm going to try and make something happen, they're going to be like, why do you want to do that for? Right? It's like it's, it's already determined. It's, you're either going to be lucky or not lucky. And it sort of comes from this notion of uh, natural resources of how Australia made its wealth, digging things out of the ground. So I got a mining license, you got a mining license next to me, you struck gold, I didn't. What's the difference between the work that we did? We both put in the grind and you struck it rich and I didn't. Or you got flooded out on your farm and I didn't. So there's, there's really no difference between us. The big difference when I came to the US or anyone, anytime I met someone from the US, if I said I want to be the best at what I do, Everyone would say, go for it, do it, be the best. We celebrate that. We want you to be the best. No one said, well, you just gotta be lucky. So that's a huge difference for me and it's, it's, it's why I'm here. May I ask, when did you first come to the US? I was 30 years old. 
So I haven't even spent half my life here yet. So, Do you think we still have that sense, that go-for-it sense, or are we starting to succumb to fatalism? Uh, I, I think it's still there. Um, I'd ask the audience, do we still have it as a country? Do we still have it as a country? Okay. There's some heads nodding. Okay. So that's good. Um, you know, I... Th I th the one thing I'm seeing is this push for equity everywhere that we're comparing outcomes, and so that that I think is uh, is dangerous when when you don't encourage people to act because you know it may lead to, to an inequitable outcome. And I think that sort of we have to have that conversation there. But you know, but overall, I think that spirit of optimism is still there. Yeah. Now, in a later chapter of the book, you deal with AI, which I think is a good thing and a happy thing, and I think fears of it are widely overblown, but sort of give us your take in this area. Well, there's a couple of takes there. One is I've been spying on the, the YouTube videos here, and I've seen there's been a couple of questions about AI from the audience, which is great. Um, my dissertation back in 1997 was actually on AI. I did machine learning there. So, so I sort of, uh, it's a bit weird to me to see now it's such a thing that's happening. Uh, you know, back then we could barely get enough memory to make the thing run. Um, but, you know, the, the principles are the same going back there. So, so in one sense, AI is a tool. It's a pattern recognizer. It's going to recognize patterns just like anything as a tool in business, right? So having actuarial tables about life and death statistics help the insurance business to be a major force and, and make the world a better place that we could have pooling of risk. That, that was because people were able to see patterns in data. So now we have these machine learning tools that are also doing exactly the same thing with much larger sets of data um, but in a similar sort of way, helping us recognize patterns and make decisions and so forth. So that's great. There's lots of entrepreneurial opportunities there to, to use that in all sorts of areas. Uh, on the other side, though, it's what's called narrow AI. So we, you may have heard of artificial general intelligence, which is about you know, human-like or beyond human, superhuman intelligence. And machine learning is not that. That's what I argue in the book. So... To have that general intelligence, you need to have unstructured problem solving. And I basically make an argument in the book that you will never get there with the current techniques that you're using in machine learning. Uh, and so people should not be worried about entrepreneurs going away. In fact, you can look up a paper I just published recently on can entrepreneurship be learned by intelligent machines? And the whole argument is laid out there and the answer is no. Okay, so uh, so in the one sense, I'm very bullish about AI being used in all of these patent recognition tasks in new ways, new sets of data, new tools. And on the other side, I'm, I'm not too worried about them taking over the world quite yet. Well, I know uh, Professor Mark Packard, Professor Peter Klein get this a lot. Uh, talk about this idea of a sort of an innate drive in entrepreneurs or the idea that entrepreneurship to, to some extent can be taught. So I guess I have to say entrepreneurship can be taught given that I'm a professor of entrepreneurship. <laughs> so uh, I'm also, uh, my first degree was in psychology, so I've done a lot of work on traits and personality and so forth. Uh, I think traits can be developed over time, but I don't think someone who's a natural introvert is going to become a flaming extrovert uh, as a result of that. So wherever you're starting in life, you can improve. You know, I was really terrible at getting up in the morning, going to work on time and so forth. It's like 
I used to have flex time in my first job. The latest you could get in was 9.30. I was right there at 9.30. You know, now I'm in the office at the earliest time you can be there. And I'm excited to go to work. I'm excited to get things done. I'm very closure-driven. I like to say I've been around entrepreneurs too long and I've acquired this bias for action. And so I don't like going to meetings and just having talk. Every meeting is like, what are we doing out of this? What's the accountability? What's the result that's going to happen? I wasn't like that before. And that's something I've learned over time by interacting with other people. So no matter what you think your deficiencies are, they can be improved. Can you become the best at something? Can you become the tallest person in a room if you're the shortest? Well, that's unlikely, right? It may require some operations or something, but, uh, you know, but it's unlikely. But you can improve on different dimensions, particularly on personality. Can you give us your thoughts on MBA programs? We get a lot of questions about them. I know Hunter Hastings has some strong feelings about MBA, MBAs. Worth, worth the money, worth the time? Uh, well, having an MBA, again, I have to say absolutely, right? <laughs> uh, I, I, give the, I used to be MBA director at my previous school, and uh, I used to give the talk. There are two types of MBAs. One you say where you got it from, and one you don't. <laughs> okay, so, so the ones where you want to say where you got it from, what are you paying for? Brand name recognition, networking, bringing premium recruiters to campus that are going to give you a huge salary bump and so forth. Um, and for the other ones, what are you paying for? Knowledge. Uh, typically, you see a lot of people who started with a degree that wasn't in business, for example. So they, they could be engineers or something like that. Don't know. That was me. I had a degree in psychology. Worked in every business function in a global 500 corporation, but nobody believed I knew anything about business. Went to get the MBA, got the buzzwords and the jargon down, good to go, right? Now everyone believes I know something about business. Okay, so there's reasons to do these things. And, and if that's what the need that you need to fill, the know what, the know how, I mean, they teach you things in MBAs. It's not like it's nothing. Uh, an MBA in entrepreneurship is an interesting one. Uh, if you need the discipline you know, for my students, is if you need someone to get you to do something and force you to do something and keep you on the, the straight and narrow and, and explore something and make it happen, then come and do my program because that's what we do. You know, so if you need that kickstart, why not? You know, if you're a self-starter, just go out and do it yourself. We just have a couple minutes left. I wanted to talk about this great quote you have in the conclusion section at the end of the book. And I'm quoting you, you say, many of the entrepreneurs that I interviewed valued autonomy and freedom more than net worth. Many of those with high net worths relished the challenge of undertaking larger and more complex problems. The wealth was incidental, more of a scorecard than a goal in itself. So is that a, a, an X factor, this, uh, the idea that it can't just be for the external validations, it's got to be something within? Yeah, I mean, uh, people have all sorts of reasons for wanting to get into this and, and motivations and, and just getting up to make another dollar when you've already got $100 million in the bank is not, is not going to get you out of bed, right? So there are people who just cash out and then they sit on a beach for the rest of their life and that's okay too. But these people that are constantly driving to be bigger and better and wanting to, to make a difference in the world or they're wanting to, to have some sort of personal validation for doing that, that's, that's reasons as well. You know, one of the guys I interviewed in the book, I didn't say this, but he, he told me just bought a warehouse for $10 million in cash. 
And he said, it's funny. And I'm like, why is it funny? He's like, well, I don't actually own a house right now. <laughs> I just rent. <laughs> so, so that's an example where it's, it's not about having the bigger, better house or you know, saying I live at this address. He was driven by other concerns. So to wrap up, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, but would you, would you mind sharing your dad's story? Because I, I found that very poignant. Yeah, so my uh, father worked for Telecom Australia, which was the, the telco AT&T equivalent in Australia. And his initial job there was as a linesman back in the day when people physically dug telephone cables into the ground. So he was out in the countryside laying telephone cables. Eventually, he got uh, moved to the training area where he was training other people how to do that. So he started as a manual laborer, didn't finish high school, uh, left at 10th grade, which was perfectly fine back then. Uh, and so he was working for the government. It was government-owned, Postmaster General's department. And yet, he was still entrepreneurial. We used to go on vacations with RVs and we used to rent an RV and go to the beach every summer. And he decided, well, maybe I could do that. You know, Instead of paying somebody to rent their RV, maybe I could buy a few RVs and rent them to someone else. Okay, so he started his own little business on the side there. My mother used to clean them out when they were returned. He's, he stored them in the backyard of the house. Uh, it was All you could see was RVs, basically. I think at some point we had like seven or eight of them. Uh, and when he got to a certain point, he sold them and uh, put an addition on our house. And that's, that's how my brothers and I got, we all had our own rooms and bathrooms and stuff like that, paid for from having this RV rental business. So... He's not a billionaire. He didn't make it rich. He's not going to be written up in any magazines for his Entrepreneur of the Year or anything like that. But he saw an opportunity. Uh, he executed on it. He made a little bit of money that made his family better off, um, all the while working for the government. Okay, So it's not an either-or situation. It's not be the billionaire and start your own private company or nothing, go to space or whatever. There's all sorts of shades of grey in between that I encourage you all to examine. Big round of applause for Dr. Stephen Phelan. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.